Larry Lawrence Grobel is the author of more than 20 books, including Conversations with Capote and Talking with Michener. He has been a freelance writer for more than 40 years, having written for the New York Times, Rolling Stone, Entertainment Weekly, and Movie Line. He is a renowned interviewer and has written numerous iconic Playboy magazine interviews. I'm here to talk to him today about his comprehensive and, and I don't say that this that often, superb book called The Art of the Interview, published in 2004, and what I would call its companion volume, even though it was written several years earlier, called Endangered Species, Writers Talk About Their Craft, Their Vision, Their Lives, and in the foreword... I'm, I'm getting to you, Larry, okay? And in the okay. and in the foreword, Robert Town calls him prepared, adaptable, and graced with the intelligence needed to shoot the breeze and elicit intriguing responses. Uh, Larry, welcome to the Bibliophile. Well, glad to be here at last. <laughs> to start with... Let's go with a quote from Aristotle, and uh, spoiler alert, I want to end with one as well. All men desire by nature to know, and they know by, and they learn by reading, researching, talking to people, questioning them, and listening. If you want people to listen to you, the challenge is to make it interesting I'm almost finished here, Larry. You've said in your book about the process of interviewing, you do all the research you can, you look for areas of interest, you aim for originality, you write down questions and topics, you try to keep your questions concise and to the point, and you listen and remember always that you're in charge and that if you lead, your subject will follow. So... If you want, after all of that preparation, to get people to actually listen to what you're saying, the challenge is to make it interesting. So how do you make it interesting, Larry? It really boils down to one word to me. The word really is preparation. Because Mm. without preparation, you're really winging it. Now, there are people who can do it that way. Larry King has always claimed that, that he never prepared, that he just went into it. Mark Marin, who does these wonderful podcasts, told me, uh, you must really hate, I, I did his show, and, and, but he said, you must hate me, he says, because you've done all this research, you've done that, you know, you go into the, such such depth, and I sit here and talk, you know, for, to somebody just like well, winging it, and uh, and I'm very popular in what happened to the interviews, <laughs> you know, in print, you know. Yeah. And I said, I don't, hate, I don't hate you at all. I said, you figured out a way to do this and take it to the level that you've taken it. Well, he's interesting, obviously. So that's my question. What makes him and what makes an interview interesting to people who listen to it? Well, what makes it interesting to me is that you get people to talk about things they have never, that you don't know about them. If you go into to an interview with oh, anybody, Joyce Carol Oates or Marlon Brando or Truman Capote or, or you know, Al Pacino, 
and you said, "Gee, I know about this. I've, I heard, you know, I know he did this. I know he did that." And 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 you start asking questions that are sort of tell me about those things. You're not learning that much. You've already seen the movie. You've got an idea. Yeah. But when you get to a place where, you know, with, with Pacino, for example, I interviewed him so many different times, and I always brought up The Godfather. I always brought up Michael Corleone because he did three of them, but. But he changed his own view of what he did and how he saw that character over the years. So I thought <coughs> that made that interesting to me because I could take it further and further. I was always my attempt has always been to go as far as I can go with somebody and then even a step further if I can without getting thrown out or punched as I did with Bobby Knight. My question would have been why is Godfather Part Three so god awful? Yeah, well, he, he he talks about that. I mean, number one, George George Hamilton wasn't supposed to play that part, but, but they couldn't get uh, Robert Duvall, and it was Duvall who wanted as much money as Pacino. But but the the point is is that he should have taken the three million and and, and he held out for the five million or whatever it was, and that really hurt it. But yeah. the other part was Sofia Coppola, Winona Ryder was was uh, going to be uh, uh, Al's daughter. Al loved what Winona Ryder as an actress, and he, she, and he, he put her into uh, looking for Richard, you know, in, in, a, in a scene from uh, Richard, Richard the Third. Yeah. So he was expecting that, and she pulled out at the last minute, and so Coppola brings in Sofia Coppola. Not the quality of an actress uh, mm -hmm. as Winona would have been, and the same with Hamilton, who I I know George Hamilton. I play cards with him. I love him a lot, but he's certainly not the consigliere that Duval was. And the third, I'll give you another answer. His haircut, his haircut, that ridiculous cut that he made. I'm trying to remember. I think it was Diane Keaton who said, "Do not do that," and she and he did it anyway. Uh, but whatever it was, <laughs> those things hurt, you know. Okay. What can you say? Yeah, we talk. We're we're really trying to get at the, uh, and I'm going to hammer this. <laughs> I'm going to hammer this pretty well the whole interview long is That's okay. how do we get an interesting interview from an author particularly uh, you define good good interviews as and, and we're talking print here as conversations with the boring parts edited out but you also say that good interviews involve many skills I'm just going to read this out one must be able to converse like a talk show host, think like a writer, understand subtext like a psychiatrist, have an ear like a musician, be able to select the best parts like a book editor, and know how to piece it together dramatically like a playwright. That's uh, multitasking. It is, isn't it? <laughs> but that's what a good interviewer does, I think. You know, I mean, the more, you know, I was asked to write a book about interviewing after my Capote book came out. New American Library offered me some money to do it. And I remember talking to James Michener, and I said, well, first of all, I didn't think the money was enough. Second of all, I didn't really think I could write a book about it. I didn't think, you know, I, I never thought of in terms of writing a book about interviewing. I, I read The Craft of Interviewing by James Brady. I knew that book, but, you know, I just didn't know if I, if I could do this. Years went by from that, I'm only 20, 30 years, and I uh, suddenly I realized I had so much information. I had so much thought about what the, what the nature of an interview is. I was teaching it at UCLA, so I had to develop a course on it. Yeah. And, and I realized that, 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 that there's so much more 
that when you actually sit down, when I go into a class, and I t the first class I do is I take 2,000 pages, manuscript pages, of my interview with Al Pacino. And that was just the first interview with that from Playboy. But it lasted for months and months. And I, br I put it down, and, I, and then I have 140 pages, which is what I edited that down to. And I have the index that I made on yellow paper that's 12 pages long, single you know, space thing. Then I show the galleys of the actual interview that Playboy sends me back, and I show that to be like 80 pages of manuscript from, the, from that. And that's the process. What you say is that good interviews are conversation with the boring parts edited out. Okay, so what did you leave in, and why did you leave it in? What I leave in is what what interests me. What my it's my own ear. I'm a, I've read a lot, so I have a sensibility. May I may be right. I may be wrong in what I leave out. Yeah. I think I'm pretty good at it because Playboy once hired me to edit other people's interviews that they weren't going to use. Yeah. Tom Snyder comes to mind. Do you remember the talk show host Tom Snyder? I do. Yeah. Somebody interviewed Tom Snyder, and the kid came back, and my editor at the time, Barry Golson, called me up and said. They can't use it. It's not very good. He says, would you mind taking a look at it? Okay. So I looked at it, and I said, it's very boring. Send me the rest of it. So he sends me the, all the outtakes. The whole interview was in the outtakes. I found it, right? So I, And I redid some of it. Barry said, gee whiz, i got to pay you for this, you know, because, you know. Well, that sort of showed me that I really had an understanding of what's good, what's that. That I can't teach you. I was you just know? about to say, and you said, you said the word sensibility, you can't teach that, but I think like what I'm getting from you, Larry, and I completely concur with it, is that whatever interests and fascinates you, you hope that your readers or listeners will agree with yes. you. An interview... Well, you know what? Many times when I've been with somebody, like Al Pacino, when I finished with him, he said... You can't be finished with me. We got to keep talking. He said, you, "You know, he said this is like, you know, this is like, like my shrink, and he's he's paying a guy for, for <laughs> to talk to him, but he wanted to keep going even after I thought we had enough." Yeah. You, so you realize, with me, I realized fairly early on that it is psychological in interview. You are trying to probe a person. You are trying to get them to to get emotional. Sometimes to cry, sometimes to talk about things. But a good interview is going to talk about things that are meaningful to the person. Yeah. And and sometimes that's very deep. Sometimes you got to go places that they don't want to go to, but that you, if you uncover, you will make them more interesting. It can be a very intense experience, an exhausting experience, I've found. Uh, oh, yeah. If, you know, I spent nine months with Barbara Streisand talking about being oh, exhausting. God. You know yeah, what I mean? That yeah. was like a, you know, incredible experience. But when I say you have to have an ear like a musician, to me, uh, that's the editing part of it. You know, sometimes you, when you're talking to somebody, actually, though, you have to hear what they're saying while you're thinking about your next question or where you may want to move it, depending on your time. Yeah. If you only have a few hours with somebody or 15 minutes with somebody, you can't just futz around. You know, we're, we, we sort of danced around it a bit, but there's really three kinds of, of interviews. There's the print interview, which uh, you're a master at. There's the uh, the audio, which which we're involved in right now, uh, radio and podcasts. And there's TV, so we should probably identify the differences and also the tricks or what whatever you want to call them of producing an interesting author interview in each one of these mediums. All right. Well, I think the difference for me. 
an author interview uh, as an audio interview would be fascinating just to hear their voices because I've already read their work. I have a James Joyce recording, Finnegan's Wake or something, or a piece from Ulysses. You can get it on YouTube, yeah. I, I have one of Hemingway too, but they both high voices. You know, yeah. that may not yeah. be their real sound because that was the old days and, you know, <laughs> you didn't know, it was a great so at that time. Yeah. But just the idea that he could, I could hear the way he pronounces certain words as I follow it in the book. I'll find the passage and I'll follow it and I'll go, Anna Libya. It's an audio experience. Uh, 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 Ulysses is an audio experience. Well, both of them. It's yeah. really mu- very much that, I, yeah. musical. Yeah. And if you, there's a, there is a, like a five record recording of it, which I have. You know, he's on one of it, but, but you have these Irish actors and actresses who are reading it, and it is musical. You see mm-hmm. how beautiful that is, his writing. But, you know, so, so to me, the only is, I won't fault it if it's not as in-depth, if it doesn't challenge me as much as if when I read it. Yeah. When I'm reading an interview with Tom Bellow or an interview with Norman Miller, I want to get to a place with it that I'll underline. You know, it's like, oh, that's a clever remark. Now, I was able, with, with a cable TV interview with Capote and with Alex Haley and with Norman Mailer, I think I succeeded because I showed them on camera talking about certain things with Norman Mailer when I asked them about stabbing his wife. Yeah. And, and, I said, and he says, why do you bring that up? And I said, well, because you wrote a poem about it. You said, as long as you use the knife. Yeah. And he corrected me. He said, a knife, you know, or vice versa. He said, so he put his finger on his collar and he, you know, opened it a little bit. And I saw, visually, you saw how uncomfortable he was. You saw yeah, how he put his arm up. Let me just jump in here. It's an important point. With an author interview, I typically focus on the work. I'm not interested in necessarily, unless it sheds light, and it typically would, but it's the work itself that's worth spending time with and and that the author feels comfortable with, rather than exposing the fact that they may have had an affair or they may have stabbed someone or shot someone or done something stupid. That, That, to me... Okay, it's emotional, which is what you want, I suppose, in terms of being interesting. But is it helping listeners to understand that work better? Well, yes, and because you have an hour, an hour and a half, you have you should be focusing on the work, and it's an author, and it's an author's interview. Yeah. So you know, if you talk to me, you want to focus on interviewing, or you want to focus on if you want to talk to me about short stories, I'm happy because I wrote a few, or you know, yeah. that kind couple of couple of novels I, too. I, I, where I've always come from, though, is from a very broad stage. I want to know what makes you tick. I was interviewed for the J.D. Salinger movie documentary that this guy Shane Salerno did, and he called me up and he said. Uh, you know, he wants to come do a, put me on camera. And I said, why would you want to talk to me? I said, I've never met J.D. Salinger. I never interviewed him. He said, well, you're known as a premier interview in this country, and I would like to know what you would ask him if you had a chance. Yeah. So I said, okay. So when I go on camera and we start talking about what things I would or wouldn't ask him. I'm asking him from two different places. As a university professor of English who might want to know about Cole Holden Caulfield and, you know, and, and Seymour in a little bit different or a little bit deeper way, or as a person who is curious about the fact that he stopped writing and why, and this, it's a different area. And so I'm always interested in the two areas. Why Norman Mailish, you know, uh, stabbed his wife? Why was I interested in that? Because he had never talked about it. 
he always refused everybody who ever asked him that yeah. answer. Yeah, so, so it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Can I get you to tell me something that you haven't talked about? Well, now, it's, it's also original, me, which is what you want. It's, it's something original. that's never never been heard before or read before. But let me, let me uh, contradict you about something. I listened to your interview with the uh, woman who wrote A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing. Yeah. Why did I listen to that? Because I got the book. Why did I get the book? Because I had read that it was a Joycean kind of thing and blah, blah, blah. So I, and I'm a big Joycean person. Yep. I went and got the book it, and I've started reading it a few times. I haven't finished it. It's a difficult book. Yeah. But I wanted to know more about her writing. I wanted to know more about her process and you didn't do that. You, you know, it was a difficult book to begin with, but you went into her life and where she was coming from and how she did stuff and how old she is. And oh, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. I was interested in one of the key things about that book is that it took so long to get published. And when it did, there was a lot of right. Uh, fanfare. Right. But I'm saying to myself, yeah, lots of books took, take a long time to get published. Yeah. And that's just standard. It's the same so, so, Larry, you weren't interested in my interview. Is that what you're saying? I was interested waiting to hear certain things that I was hoping okay. you would ask. Okay, so what and what did you want to hear? What what specifically? I wanted to hear more about. I, I wanted her about the style. I wanted her to talk more about Joyce because she brings it up. She says, you know, sort of the elephant in the room is Joyce. She, I wanted her to talk about Beckett. You know, she's Irish. You know where she's coming from. I would like to know how she developed the style she developed was William Faulkner's uh, uh, book uh, an influence on her the sound and the fury she's an, it's an original book it's a very original book but it has precedence so that, I was looking for a little bit more about that That's she all. actually she bridles a bit at that she does doesn't like the comparison necessarily but still it's there no, it's I obvious don't, I don't you have to talk good. about bridle. it tell me why you bridle tell yeah. me why that okay. upsets you okay. like calling a woman a woman writer you know they don't like that but you know it's always good to provoke them you yeah know what i mean it's the, yeah. i have no problem provoking you know even if i under i may know the answers to three quarters of the questions i ask you know but i still will go there because i don't know where else it may lead to so why are you interested in learning from her about Beckett and her uh, style and that sort of thing. Why does that interest you? Well, because writers interest me. I, I'm always interested in where they, you know, where they coming from. Where you, when you're writing a difficult idea, I've written a book in, in the style of J.P. Donnelly as I was learning to find my own voice. But you know, I find fascinating the writers who take leaps. Basically, where do you go from Joyce? Well, Don Levy, Don Levy took one section of Joyce, the, using the first and third person in the same paragraph, let's say, about, about the same person, and, and he did a whole, he developed that as, as his book, you know. But when you, when you are developing your voice and your character, you know, how risky is it? How difficult is it? It took her nine years to publish, but did it take her six weeks to write it or six months? I remember she talked about it. It wasn't as long as I thought it might have been. But, you know, when you get inspired, as a writer, I'm listening to that stuff. You know what I mean? Because I'm, what? I'm so you can so you can learn from it something yeah. that you can apply. Yeah. It's, oh, that's my curiosity. I like to know that Hemingway, you know, used to stand up and yeah. type his dialogue and sit down and write his his description. I saw the place he did that in Cuba. I don't know if you've been there, but yeah, no, yeah. I, I haven't. I've seen pictures with Don Levy with with Michener. Whenever I'm in with a writer, I always say, "Can I see your where you study? I want to see we. I want to see the machine you're using." You know, wherever Michener went, he would go and buy a door from a lumberyard that was, you know, flat. Yeah. And then he would get two 
filing cabinets, took two drawers each, put okay. the drawer on top of the cabinets, and that was his desk. Wherever he went, he had... He Why is that interesting? As to, to me, I, could, I couldn't care less if he had a door that he writes on. See, that's, that's the difference between you and I. Not that I'm wrong or you're wrong or I'm right or you're right. But if I'm editing it, I will include that stuff. If you're editing it, you will exclude that stuff. The question then is, how interesting is it? Yeah, exactly. Then, <laughs> now, that's when we get back to, well, what's the interest? Now, yeah. you, you have to tell me what your audience is. Is it 100,000, 200,000, or 50? And my audience, which was, let's say, Playboy at the time, 7 million to 20 million. You've 20 got a million much broader people. audience, yeah. You know, so it's not, there's no right or wrong here. You know, no, but you're I, right, though. I mean, the, the for, for example, the fact that uh, Michener used these doors as desks, I mean, that's good cocktail party fodder. It, it is, yes. But it's also, how does a man work? Does he handwrite? Does he write on a typewriter? Does he use the computer? It's different. Jack Kerouac was probably the first computer writer who didn't have a computer. He took a roll yeah, of paper. Yeah, a long roll of paper, yeah. And rolled it, rolled it, rolled it. On the typewriter, yeah. When you wrote with a typewriter, you had, you had an eight and a half by 11 page thing. Your yeah. thoughts would sometimes come to a close when you get to the bottom of the page at a period. You know, and you go to the next. Now on a computer, you never get to that bottom of the page, so your thought might go a little bit longer. It's interesting. It's just the way our minds work and the, with the tools we use. Again, I don't find the fact, I mean, first of all, I don't think he's a great writer like others do. But the fact that he used to write on toilet paper, it, is that interesting? Well, it's cocktail party fodder. Is it really interesting? But then again, what is interesting? That's sort of, that's what I'm getting at. No, but, that, but that leads to his, the, the, the nature of stream of consciousness, the nature of the way the mind works. You know, are you just going to vomit everything out that comes out, which is what Kerouac was doing in a True. way? His mind was working and we were getting to see a mind at work. True. Or... Is it very carefully edited? As a Geisimov never cared about how he wrote. He was not a very good writer. Right. He wrote prolifically, and his editors ed took the books and made them into books. Tom Wolfe, so the same thing, Thomas Wolfe, uh, Look Homeward Angel. All these books were twice as long as they were, yeah. and they just would bring them in, and they edited it down to shape. Now, some writers never let you touch anything. Capote was very exact about how he wrote. He polished, he polished and polished. Yeah. What you're basically saying is the finished product is what interests you. You're interested in talking about the book and about what, you know, you know, what are the ideas that are in that book. I'm interested in the art more so than the artist. And I'm also just based on my own focus. I'm interested in the book. So how did this idea get from being in the head of the writer to the finished product and the whole process? And We're to, That's the same thing I'm talking about. <laughs> You're right. You're right. You could go at me all, all this throughout this whole time, trying to just answer that interest. What's interesting? Because you're, you're judging interest from one point of view. I'm saying it I, from whatever point of view I have. But part of what I see uh, that makes an interview tick for me yeah. is my own per is my personality. Because when I'm there, yeah. and I become goofy or fool around, say a joke, you know, with Brando, when I said, what's some of your favorite movies? And he said, Ugetsu, you know, for the Japanese movie. Yeah. And I just said to him, Ugetsu'd when you're rich and famous. That's all I had to do. And he, he cracked what, up. He cracked up, yeah. And he, 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 it got to him. You know what you're talking about is 
what I think is probably one of the most important uh, aspects of a good, successful interview is rapport. If you're able to get the rapport, then you're you're on a different plane, and you can hopefully, as you say, kind of get people to to relax and be comfortable with you and trust you, so that they say things that are meaningful, which is which is interesting. But then, on the other hand, with Bobby Knight, there was no rapport between Knight and I. He hated journalists. He just yeah. hated us. Yeah. And, and and I was coming in to ask him the toughest of all questions. But it was one of the most startling interviews that I've ever put out, and it got some of the most startling results. There were two interviews in my life I became part of that the, 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 the story. Yeah. And that was Bobby Knight and Jesse Ventura when he yeah. was governor. But I didn't know that I would be on the radio with every talk sh- sports talk show host in the country, <laughs> in Cleveland, in Florida. Well, didn't he, he try to grab the stuff out of your hands and, and like the the actual tapes, right? So it was yeah, a, he, yeah. He, he and I fought, but, but, he, but it was like, all the questions I had, half of them were very difficult questions. Yeah. And I had to ask him, and he was a volatile man. He had just yeah. been fired. Well, now, which is actually, to your point, though, he, he, was, he was criticized for actually what attacking some of his students and being abusive yes. and yeah. yeah which is he, which is sort of the fact that he did what he did in the interviews is ample evidence that this is the kind of person he is exactly and that's what you get and that's why i even wrote in the back i, I chose that interview of all the interviews I've ever done is the the full interview to show in the art of the interview book yeah and i, I preface with a prologue said on the road with the angriest man in america yeah, right because that really was what, what what happened. Yeah. I didn't even realize that he had punched me until I got home, and I flew home, and I had to call the doctor because I had tremendous pain in my ribs, and I had had a hernia operation a few weeks early, and I just wanted to know if that was a possible result. And he said, no, somebody punched you in the ribs. And I realized <laughs> that's what happened with, with Knight. When wow. we, were shuffling, we were fighting in the car. <laughs> it was, the emotion was so much, I didn't feel it until I got home and had the so remind me not to uh, interview coaches and athletes and that sort of thing. Only that one. Only that one. <laughs> <laughs> you make an interesting point. Uh, again, it's not really directly on message in terms of uh, author interviews, but I like what you say here. You say that the key uh, to the art of surviving in the real world involves the skills that an interviewer needs talking listening thinking analyzing selecting and editing segments these are are skills that can be applied to uh, real life and i guess that's the course that you taught is that correct yeah i you know one of the things i did uh, with students was to teach them how to prepare for an interview themselves for a job interview yeah and what I basically was telling them is, first of all, make sure that you are prepared as if it was an interview you were giving. So you study about the subject that you want to get a job at. You learn, you get, you read their reports. You find out as much as you can. And then when they're starting to talk to you and question you, they have questions that you want to ask them. You'll be surprised at how they respond. And it yeah. works. I know it works because so many of them would come back and tell me, I got the job. And they would thank me. I said, I, we, they, was, they said they never saw anybody so prepared. Yeah. That was the whole thing. It's like, you know, it's like there, there are things about learning about the interview process and also how to listen. And that also when to cut in and when not to. You, there, yeah. there are 
ways that the interview itself, done correctly, can be life-informing and help you, especially these days, you know, when, when time, I think it's a really hard time for young people right now. How do yeah. they find jobs? Where are they going to go? You know, one, one of the things can, that I like, uh, I like particularly about that is that uh, you follow it up with one of the reasons that one of your interview candidates was so happy to divulge interesting information is that they said that they have a feeling that you really want to know and that you need you need to convey this feeling of of well it's enthusiasm but it's also sort of focused interest and curiosity which I think speaks well, to Aristotle too which is you know this whole idea of we really do want to know well you know when I I think the, what you're referring to there is uh, the, my time with Warren Beatty mm-hmm. and I when I said to Warren Beatty what's it like to be Warren Beatty yeah. that's a stupid question in a way right I mean, what's yeah. it like to be anybody yeah. but Warren Beatty had a certain mystique about him he never they gave interviews he, every girl I've ever met who knew him who had slept with him was still his friend said he was the best you know I mean nobody had anything negative to say about Warren you know more, he was a uh, real Lothario I mean he was like him and Ryan O'Neill were the two who were out there just fooling around with every woman you could possibly get and I said to him and I've heard stories about him at the Playboy Mansion with, with, there were so many things out there yeah. I said what is it like and I looked at him and I was just sort of smiling I said what's it like to be you and he looked at me and he says you know people are always asking me that but I have a feeling you really want to know <laughs> and I did well so that you can so that you can use it in your own life <laughs> well hopefully I can learn something <laughs> I don't know what you learn right you know and I watched, you know, I watched this guy on the phone. I watched how he handled himself. It was really, he was an interesting man. Because I hear so much, I do get curious about the person I, I'm going to talk For to. For sure. And I always find that important. I mean, even even when I was with Freddie Prinze Jr. And we go into his house and we go up to his bedroom. He wanted to talk in the bedroom. So we're in this bedroom and it's a large room. And I look at all the shelves and they're empty. And I yeah. go... Yeah. Freddie, I said, where are your books? Yeah. And he said, I don't, I don't have books. I don't mm-hmm. read. I said, you don't have books. What? Well, I said, I said, you know, I said, I collect first editions. He says, what's that? Didn't know first editions. So now I'm dealing with somebody that's on a very different <laughs> level than I am in a certain way. But yet he's made, he's got the Mercedes outside. He's got the big house and <laughs> he's doing okay. Yeah. So let me get to where he's at. How did he get to where he's at? So I said, well, what do? You, and he started talking about comic books. He collected comic books. I said, oh, then I got into that. First editions of comic books. He understood that. Yeah. And then what he paid for it. And that, now tell me when you started reading those book comic books when you were a kid. And then we get to where he, you know. We get the juice. That's where the juice is. That's where, yeah. that's where the passion is, right? Yeah, exactly. So you have yeah. to find what people's interest is, what they collect, what they like. If you're looking at that broad of an interest, you don't look for that with an author necessarily and I perfectly understand it because if you're talking to Cormac McCarthy and he hasn't talked to many people or Don DeLillo let me talk about white noise let me talk about all the pretty horses let me talk about you know how you felt about the movie made of this thing or that thing and you know, yeah there's a lot of things that you want to talk about to an author you know it's curious with Truman Capote is because I thought I had 
the rest of my life and his life to talk to him. He yeah. agreed to let me talk. And I thought, oh man, so I, we did the gossip part. We got all that stuff, but I was looking That's all he is, reading. though. That's all he is. He's a fabulous writer about with and about rich people and gossip. That's what he's wonderful at. Look, he was also really good with the grass harp and yeah. his short pieces, his early work. He was a marvelous writer. He was. If you look at just the writing itself, he only wrote six or eight books. You yeah. Know, and, and yeah. But, but he, as a writer, he was, uh, I thought, a, a very strong, good writer. Uh, as a person, though, he came across... Delightful. Well, okay, but again, his media persona was... Like he had this sort of squeaky little baby whale voice and he was like, it seemed like he was a big backstabber and he uh, lied all the time. Like, who wants that person as a friend? Right, here's the thing. Here's the thing. When I was with him, I never thought he lied. Okay. I really believed what he was telling me. And he was saying things. And, you know, and if you really look at my book, I mean, his remarks, Jack and Suzanne looked like a truck driver or something, whatever he would say, those are just his perceptions. Yeah. I mean, what he said about Joyce Carol Oates, who's a friend of mine, it was devastating, you know, <laughs> that she would, you know, go out. Well, he's, he's, so in other words, you're saying he's being blunt and very honest. He could be, yes. You know, I, 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 tremendously entertaining. I mean, he was aware of being an entertainer. Hugely, yeah. yeah. So, you know, so I looked forward to seeing Truman. Oh. I mean, I just like, I said, well, I'm going to spend five hours with Truman Capote. Larry, it do, I mean, really, it, it doesn't get much better than that. I mean, in terms of like, why are you doing what you're doing? You get to hang out and have a blast with one of the great writers of the century. Like, this is a payback for, for what you're doing, or payoff, anyway. I mean, like, look, Saul Bellow. I tried to get Sol Bella for years. Playboy said no, no, no. You know, it wasn't Playboy material. Yeah. And I said, look, this guy's the greatest writer alive right now. He's won mm -hmm. the Nobel Prize. Let, let me. Finally, they said okay, because I, I wouldn't leave him alone. They finally said okay. And Bello uh, <laughs> at first says he's sick and he's working on something. His secretary writes me, so write, you know, get, so I said, can I write you back? Try again in six months. I tried again in six months. No, he still didn't want to do it. I tried again another time. No, he, finally, finally, Bello agrees. Well, what what did you do? What did you say that got him to agree? I think it was my persistence. I was, just, was just persistence. Strictly just saying, I, I didn't say anything about what I want to talk about or any of that stuff I, with him. I just said, you know, I'd done some pretty good interviews so he could see my work, but I'm serious. Basically, I said I'm a serious person yeah. and I, you're, you know, you're a writer deserves to be in that magazine, basically. Yeah. So what happened is, by the time he agreed to let me come, I told Playboy, and they said, no, they don't want him anymore. <laughs> I couldn't believe that. Yeah. So suddenly I'm going, I, you know, you say that, what's the perks of my work? Yeah, going to see Saul Bellow on someone else's dime is a perk of the work. I mean, it's more than a perk, isn't it? It's like, it's one of the, the whole reasons, of, the yeah, basis. Exactly. I told Arthur Kretschmer, who was the executive editor of Playboy, I wrote him a note. And I said, uh, I do not feel right telling Saul Bellow that Playboy no longer wants him. I said, I think that's something that you should it should come from you. Yeah. Just for his stature, he should have it from you. And of course, and Arthur Crenshaw said, oh, go ahead and do it. <laughs> he didn't want to do it. So he gave me the go. So that's how I got to do Saul Bellow. Okay. Uh, you know. What about... Uh, Mariana Palacci. Oh, I love her. Yeah, I but what her. about her great... I think she yeah. she interviewed Hitchcock. Hitchcock. 
She yeah. interviewed Hitchcock, and you have it in the book, where at the very end she says something like, well, she calls him quite a, a quite a You're creep. A meat, despicable little man or something like that. She, yeah. she, she really led, led into him. But here's the thing. That's one of the reasons why Hitchcock, see, they said to Hitchcock, the guy named, I think it was David Freeman, was in the room. He was one of the, a writer for one of Hitchcock's last projects. Yeah. And then when, and there was, my name was brought up. They said, oh, yeah, this guy, Larry Grabell's coming interview Hitch and he said are you sure you want to do that and that was what the conversation was are you sure you know he's going to go into places blah 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 <laughs> yeah. well okay I, there's nothing I can do about that but I always feel I'm fair I always feel that I've never gone out I mean De Niro hated the interview I did with him um, but it, it was an honest interview you know and I kept telling him I'm not impressed with him as a person actor yes I am more now now that he's come out, that's true. Yeah, he, all he does is swear his head off. He does, but he, but, but, well, let's put it this way: he's still, you know, his, I don't care about his latest movies or something. But he's he's a great actor. Yeah, I mean, as I say, for sure he is, and the same with Pacino. I so think you, got, you give him the leeway that you give Pavarotti for no matter what he does. You know, I mean, it was like he was he it, was Pavarotti. Well, that's right. You separate the art from the artist. <laughs> yeah, and that's you know because normally the artist. The person is usually not so great, you know. I yeah, mean, exactly. Cool. There's there's lots of asshole artists around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes I think I'm too nice. That's why I'm not a really great writer. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, you produced a, a really, really good book, The Art of the Interview. Uh, highly, highly recommend it. Now that we've got Oriana Falacci in our sights, uh, I just want to preface the next question with a short quote from her. I do not feel myself to be, nor will I ever succeed in feeling like a cold recorder of what I see and hear. On every professional experience, I leave shreds of my heart and soul. Yeah, now, I agree with that. Uh, okay, now, the question is, and it's uh, it seems to be a fairly important one uh, as far as interviewing goes, and that is... Do you, uh, well, I, I mean, I know what your answer is going to be, but I think there's a, there's a division, okay? I, I tend to like to tr confront, uh, not argue, but confront diplomatically and disagree with people that I interview if I can. Now, John Sawatsky, who's a, who's a great interviewing guru and a fellow Canadian, completely disagrees with me. It's like the old proverb, are you the wind trying to get the man's coat off, or are you the sun? Yeah, well, uh, I would say I'm the wind. Me you know, too. <laughs> I, definitely, I definitely try to reveal as much as possible. You know, I, I've had these discussions. I have a, a guy who wants me to do a podcast with him. He has a show that, that reaches five million people, he no. says, and whatever. And it's, it's about the creative life. And he says, you know... I try to always ask the most positive things. I try, the sun. I try to create the sun. And I think that's great, you know, and I th there's no problem with that. I said, but I'm not the guy who's going to, I'm not going to fawn, you know, I'm not going to be uh, Mike Pence to Donald Trump. You know, I just can't do that. So my, my feeling is let the chips fall where they may. Let's go as far as we can with something. Let's go as deep as we can with something. Let me see who you are. 
That's my challenge. Yeah. Strictly. I guess. And, and I, miss, I miss doing it. I haven't been doing it long in depth interviews. I've been writing. You know, last number of years, I've written like 28 books and I'm self publishing a great deal of them. Why? Because I'm writing exactly what I want to write. Well, that's I'm good. at a stage in my life where I'm doing what I want and yeah. I'm happy doing it. And if no one ever reads my work, it's okay. I wrote a book that I think is as good as The Art of the Interview, which is You Talking to Me. Yeah. Which is, that's uh, a uh, memoir, right? Uh, no, that's You Show Me Yours. That's a memoir. Oh, yes. You're talking, that's... You're talking to me is this one. You know, on the back, I, I listed all the names of every person that I'm writing about. And what I thought was, this is what Mark Marin kept asking me. It's like you asking me what makes something interesting. Marin kept saying to me, what have you learned? You've done all these people. What have you yeah, learned? Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't want to talk about that to him because I was thinking about a book about that I didn't want to give it all out in, in well I think you were concerned that you hadn't actually thought about it and you were you don't like listening to that interview because it doesn't make you look so good right I, I don't like it all the people like it yeah Mark Marin's brother wrote me an email okay. saying it's my favorite interview I said really uh, okay Larry <laughs> so why. Larry you know, what just, what what have you learned <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing there's 120. Uh, what I did was I started thinking about the people I interviewed. So I looked at Mae West, Elliot Gould, Charlie Sheen, Goldie Hawn, my old piano teacher Ted Harris, my the art the artists I knew that growing up with about uh, Arthur Singer. What did I learn from Paul McCarthy, who's now you know a great uh, artist? I mean, he, he makes five million dollars on a, each sculpture, and I saw him when he was a performance artist, you know, putting hot dogs in his mouth and. Uh, uh, shaving his body hair. I mean, you know, what did I learn from him? Well, one of my great learning experiences and it was an insight into myself. Why? Because he told me a story. He told me a story about how he did this performance where he was in a car for five days. He never left the car. He ate day, shit day, did everything in the car. And I, and I was fascinated by that because he was my doppelganger. He was my, he was the, the opposite of me. And so, I would oh I, I brought it up I, I I had a bunch of these artists at my house once and I was interviewing them all and I brought this up and I said Paul talk about that experience in the car and he looked at me and he says uh and he, he didn't want to talk about it so then he said Larry come in the kitchen so I go in the kitchen with him and he says you know that story I said yeah he says I never did it oh I said, no I never did it <laughs> right. and oh, I looked at bummer. him and he just said, I said why did you tell me he says because I know you like stories. No, dear. And I, he was right. He he got my he got me. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I had written about that, and I didn't. I didn't. I, I was going to put that into an article. And I don't think I did. I said, Paul, if I would have wrote written about it, it would have existed. He says, Yeah, don't. That's part of performance art, isn't it? You know, I mean, it was. See, so you know who he sounds like. He sounds like Andy Warhol. In a certain way, yeah. and, but what it was was it was a very Zen like moment for yeah, me yeah. and so you know i appreciated that and i, I you know the, the same thing with with you know elliot gould uh saying to me when i first met him and and we weren't talking i mean he, he was late for an hour and he came in and he was stoned and he wants to put on marvin gay i said no i said tape recorder will pick up the music let's watch tv no i don't want to watch tv let's talk and we start talking, and I say, you're from Brooklyn, aren't you? And he goes, information. I said, you used to do those Bosco commercials. He says, information. I, every question I gave him was information, he would say, is the word back, my response. And I finally said to him, Elliot, maybe we should do this on another day. I, you, you don't seem to really be wanting doing this. I've been waiting here a long time, and we're not getting anywhere. And he looked at me, he says, we're talking, man. We're talking, aren't we? 
and I realized what he was saying to me was, "Go deeper. Go, you know, right. interest, make Don't it stop. easy for me." Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I, you know, so I always took that as like that was my epiphany with him. That was what I learned. Yeah. Yeah. And to go beyond. As long as he's, as long as he continues to talk to you, as long as he hasn't told you to get out, then yeah, you can say, keep yeah, going. He didn't say get out. I, yeah. I said let's get out. Of yeah. Here. No. Yeah. So you know, so so you know, there are learning experiences from Arthur Singer. I grew up watching this guy. He was well, he and Roger Tory Peterson, the two most famous bird artists of our time. Yeah. Both of them. Well, Peterson might still be alive. Arthur died some while ago, but I grew up with his son was my friend and. Uh, and is still my friend and does the covers for my books, by the way. But but hmm. I grew up watching in the neighborhood in Jericho, Long Island, a bike ride away. I go to Paul's house, and there's Arthur, and he's got a bird, an eagle, that he got from the Museum of Natural History. No one's allowed to take out any of those uh, specimens. Yeah. He was. That's right. how, you know, and, then, and then he would go to Africa and just to photograph birds, you know, and he would have adventures and stuff like that. Yeah. But he was the most mild-mannered guy, and he smoked a pipe. And, and I just saw the difference between that lifestyle and my father's lifestyle, going to work, coming home tired, all that stuff. So what'd you learn? I was going to um, do a painting for a high for my high school class or something. I did it at his house, and I was trying to get you know whatever brushes I should use. And Arthur said to me, "Always use the best brushes, even if you're just starting out. Use good brushes." And that was enough. Because that's what I learned about tape recorders. That's what I learned about, you know, computers. Whatever equipment you have, if you're going to be a photographer, yeah. use the best. Yeah. If you're going to go, you don't get a cheap tape recorder that's going to screw you up if you're doing something. Get the most expensive one or the best rated one. That, that, that simple thing, use good brushes, was my lesson in life about what about quality. You're going to go eat ice cream. That's Why good. Eat Terrible ice cream. Spend yeah. a few more cents and get a, the best of it. You know, Very good. That's basically the lesson I learned in life. So if I get yogurt, if I get anything, if I get a good scotch. What's the name of that uh, book again? You, comma, talking to me. We've been a bit thrown off, and, and I, so I'm going to wind it back to the uh, the the point where we talked about challenging other people and okay. being challenged and. Uh, to, just to get back on track with the interviewing, the interviewer has to be mentally alert and ready to challenge and be challenged. Right. And be challenged. That's interesting. Well, because it, it, not only am I going to challenge you about something that I know about, but you may come back at me and say, well, you know, look at this. I mean, I watched Hannity yesterday talking to um, Mark Cuban. Now, I don't watch Fox too, too much. My wife will leave the room immediately. Yeah. But I find it highly amusing and high, you know, to watch some of it. You know, I agree. Boring. I can't believe some of the things that I'm hearing. But I'm saying the president is listening to this. He's doing things because of what they're saying to him. He's firing all these people because they're saying to do it. And so you got to pay attention. you got to pay attention to everything, not just to what you say. But totally. here is, so here is uh, Hannity. You know, asking a question about why do you want like Biden? Uh, he's he's a bumbler, and he's not, I don't understand. But and so Cuban says, "Well, it's, and he, Cuban makes his remarks. Hannity gives a, gives his thing. Then Hannity says, "Okay, I'll give you the last word." So Cuban makes a remark that's negative to Trump. Hannity jumps right back in and starts you know doing his thing. I'm saying, "Wait, what happened to the last word there?" He has to get it all the time. So I'm watching that stuff, but it's a give and take, you know. And you, but you know, from Hannity's point of view, he will never. 
knock the president. He's going to defend this guy. So it's not it's not news anymore. It's it's it's, it's the Trump show when you watch that thing. Yeah. But you know, then he's you in for a big watch. reward. That's all I can say. Yeah. You know, well, listen. You know, it's 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 quite it's quite interesting to me what's going on with that channel. No, but and and Trump complains that it's not enough good enough for him now. He's what's like, that's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? He's positioning himself to obviously to set up his own TV uh, network. Well, that's what he was going to do originally. That's right. That's what that he wanted what, to do. That that's was, right. He never thought he'd be president. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. I don't understand. See, my thing is, and I just wrote something on Facebook about this. I said I don't understand why anybody would want to be president in 2020. Mm, yeah. What you got? I mean, it's it was terrible when Obama came in. The economy was terrible. But this, you got to deal with. A, it's going to be coming back. You're going to deal with more deaths. You're going to do. It's a horrible time to be a president. It, it is, and yeah. You, especially if you're not a good leader. Yeah. Why not just? You have country clubs. You have all the money in the world. Yeah. You have. You have all the despots around the world. No, but you know what? He can't. Israel. There's no way you can get more attention than he's getting now. That's the thing. It's like yeah, peak he, attention. He, he, if he steps down... It's, he feeds on it. No, but he'll still have it. That's he'll have it, Trump but will. you're right. He will. He's always had it. Okay, we've got to go off what Trump. Off like Trump. He's always no done. more Trump. Sorry. No more Trump. <laughs> sorry. No more Trump. Sorry. <laughs> uh, sorry. Let's get back to the boring, uh, the boring work of, of interviewers. The interview is like a massage, uh, working out the knots. It's like a dance where the subject hopefully follows your lead. Like like when I stopped, I wanted us to stop talking about Trump. Yeah, I, no, I appreciate you are direct, redirecting me, and I always ask people who interview me to do that. By the way, because I can, I have a tendency to just talk, and if you allow me to talk, I'll go in a hundred <laughs> different directions, and I'm having a good time. But it's not necessarily what you need or what you want. So I always preface it by saying, uh, "Well, with you, I preface it by saying I'll talk as long as you want." So yeah, I like mean, that. I, so, appreciate so, that. In other words. You know, you'll edit it down to what you need anyway, and then you'll be you'll have what whatever you might need, hopefully. But usually, when someone's on a time limit, it's it's difficult. So that's why I say I, I, it's part of the training, really, is to how to steer a conversation back and how to know when to let it go. Yep. Yeah. You know, let it let it go in a new direction. Let it happen that way because this is more interesting than where I was going to go with it. You don't know, so you know that's the listening part. Well, that's the so that's the wonderful it, that's the wonderful know, thing like, about about a conversation. I think, and that's what Montaigne said about conversations. The reason that they're so wonderful is that you really don't know where they're going to end up. Right. Right. You don't know if we're going to have a good conversation or bad. You don't know if we're going to end up hanging up on each other or just, you know, saying, hey, let's have a beer next time you're in the t in town. You don't know that. You know, yeah. I never knew that I would become have a 35 year friendship with Al Pacino that was like uh, brothers. Yeah. I never knew that was going to happen. Uh, you know, when I first went in, I was nervous as hell. But then they, I saw he was more nervous than I was. So I say he calmed me down. You know, so it's just you just don't know. Um, I. I I develop relationships with people like uh, uh, Kim Basinger or Dolly Parton or Goldie Hawn, and then I do something that they don't like, and I lose their relationship, or you know, just something occurs, and I say, "Well, that wasn't a relationship to begin with. It was a lesson. These people are not your friends, basically." Yeah. Now I just I'm I'm on Montaigne right now, so I want to just lay a, a <laughs> quick little thing on Montaigne, even though Goldie Hawn's Go Goldie Hawn's probably way more interesting, but. Especially that, that piece that you did on her about 
Al Cap and him exposing himself to her, but they have to read the book to get the story, okay? Okay. Uh, I was triggered by something, and so basically I wanted to just get on the record this quote. The study of books is a languid and feeble process that gives no heat, whereas conversation teaches and exercises us at the same time. If we talk with a man of strong mind and a tough jouster, he presses on my flanks, he pricks me right and left, his ideas stimulate mine, rivalry, vanity, and the struggle urge me on and raise me above myself, and agreement is an altogether tiresome constituent of conversation. Oh, that's a, I would use that quote in my book if I did another version of it. It's an excellent quote. Yeah. No, I, I, I don't know if I agree about the study of books give me no, uh, no front... heat. I don't know if I would agree with that part of it, but I know what he's saying um, because, you, you know, you, you have a dialogue in your head when you read a book, basically. You know, a book is, is aimed at one person at a time, um, but a, com a conversation is a, is a challenge because someone's always going to have an opinion, and an opinion may be something you agree or disagree with. If you mm. agree with everything, it's no fun. You know, I mean, after a while, it's like, okay, we don't have to talk. My position, and yours too, is that it's more interesting when there's disagreement. Yeah, absolutely. But honest disagreement. I mean, I do try to provoke. There's no doubt about it in my life. I've, I've done that. But, you know, when you're with people who've been interviewed a long time, they know what you're doing. You know, they'll, they'll point it out. Brando was very good at always pointing out. You know, he would say, I can always tell when you're asking the money question. He says, because you know, your leg will shake or your voice will go <laughs> up or your timber. You know, he, 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 you know, was observant. Yeah. And I didn't doubt that I, that's what I would do when I get to a place. Sometimes, you know, you try very hard to keep everything on the same key, especially when you're getting deeper into something that you really wanted to get to, yeah. you know, um, but, you know, I guess that's the art thing. You know, I remember Capote's remark about gossip to be a form of art. Okay, uh, I want to get on to Ira Glass, and this is talking about uh, radio and audio. You quote him as saying that he doesn't want his <laughs> his guests to go on for more than forty five seconds because I guess it's not it's not interesting. Whereas you you quote David Issey as saying that uh, he goes for as long as seven or eight minutes, just so long as it's interesting. I just wonder if you have any kind of rule on, in that regard. No, because I'm. Yeah, unless I'm doing it for for the television one, that's that's something else. I mean, for radio or TV. Yeah, no, I think you do want to keep the remarks as short as you can. You know, I mean, you don't want people to go on unless they're telling a really good story. You know, that's got. If I talk about the Bobby Knight experience, I think I can hold your attention for ten minutes. You okay. Because that's yeah. just an unusual situation. Mm. Um, and and like I'll act it out. My voice will go up and down. All that stuff. You know? Okay. Um, but. But for the most part, I think that people are looking for, especially these days, you know, with the Twitters, and our, our attention span is, is, is lessened. Yes and no. I mean, the podcasts, uh, you know, they'll typically run, they can run as long as two or three hours. And they can, and I, but I don't listen to them. I, I, maybe I'll listen to one or two. I don't have to pay, like, there's a thing called metal. My, my doctor friend 
that keeps wanting me to do it. Saturday mornings from nine in the morning till eleven, so it's two hours, and you pay for you know, and you get five different speakers coming on. I don't want to sit in front of my computer unless I'm working. You know what I mean? I yeah. Just, I, I don't have the patience for it. I'm sure it would be fascinating. He tells me, you know, oh, you really should see this. Everyone, even this masters thing, you for a hundred eighty dollars. You can take lessons from all these masters, Joyce yeah. Carol Oates or whatever, Annie Leibovitz, and you, you can see them all and you can watch them all. So I think that's a really interesting thing. I'm not geared to watch and learn that much from my computer yet. I just not. Well, it's you're so, geared to so create. Much. You are. I feel guilty if I'm doing that and yeah. I'm not working on the story or, or even just reading. There's so much reading I haven't done and I worry about that. I worry that I won't finish Dostoevsky, or I won't even get the Tolstoy, or I won't be reading the, the you know certain Bellow that I wanted. I haven't read yet. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff I haven't read, um, and I I wish I was. But you know, when it comes to the seven minutes or the Ira Glass forty-five seconds, I think Ira Glass is right with forty-five seconds. David Say does, does something else. He does the story core. So David Say is doing something that he wants you know people to to tell their stories basically. I'll give you one example. Okay. Um, I I interviewed Alex Haley. Alex Haley and I had a lot in common because he was a Playboy interviewer. He did Miles Davis. He did George Lincoln Rockwell. Um, you know, he did Muhammad Ali. He did Malcolm X. And we, you know, we're, we're, we're exchanging stories. You know, tell me about your, the, the best interview you did, the worst, the most. You know, yeah. all, all that stuff I could relate to. We could have a great conversation, and we did. But when you, when I watched what we did, Alex Haley was a storyteller. Every one of those stories was more than six minutes long. And you I was doing a Playboy cable TV interview that was edited down to ten minutes. Like it was like a sixty-minute thing. I, I had an introduction and then a ten. I could not use any of the stories he told. Yeah, yeah. I had to find the little bits and pieces that were a minute long or two minutes long. It was like wow, you know, it's so much better than what I showed. That's a uh, a problem with the medium, not necessarily with him. No, I don't blame him at all. I blame me. I blame me for that. I blame me for not being more uh, aware of what I was doing as a TV thing. I ended up putting that interview in the book, in uh, Endangered Species. I believe Alex Haley is in there. So, so you can get to see, you get to see the longer stories. It's all there yeah. in print, yeah. but you don't see it on. When if I showed you the video, it's a nice video, by the way. But it's you know, but it's it's nowhere near the in depth it could have been or yeah. was. Uh, so it's just a matter of the medium being the message in a sense and which one, uh, what what you're using it for and how much you want to get across and do you want to show a personality or do you want to show something intellectual uh, or something entertaining. That That's really the choices you have to make when you're dealing with time. I've never dealt with time on my major interviews, so I've been lucky that way. Let's move on to relationships. Uh, you quote Roy Firestone yeah. with ESPN. You admire the work that he did, and he he always went oh, yes. for he always went for an emotional center, yeah. and he often focused on the family. Now, there's a a very very good author interviewer in Canada, Eleanor Wachtel, and she invariably goes to the family. Again, I suppose it's about revealing the character of someone that the listener is really interested in because they've created stuff that they love. 
how do you uh, see this? It, I think you, what you just said is that the reason a person is listening to something or reading something is because they're interested in that person. Yeah. You know, or getting to know that person or because they already know that person and they want to go more with it. So yeah. there's an interest there. James Gardner told me that when his father remarried this woman, she was a real terrible woman. And he made, she made him dress up when he did something wrong in a dress. And he, he, she called him by a woman's name and made him go to the market or something like that. It got to a point where he got so angry with her that he attacked her. He grabbed her by the throat. He threw her down on the bed and he was choking her. His father came running in, grabbed him off and whatever. Father eventually divorced the woman. To you, that may not be an interesting thing because how did that affect James Gardner and his maverick, you know, or whatever? Yeah. To me, that's as revealing as anything I can give you. And I find it fascinating that, that you know, this man who came from this background managed to overcome whatever he did and do what he did. That's, a, to me, those stories are... I, Halle Berry's father took the Maltese dog they had uh, when it was barking picked it up, and threw it against the wall. Halle Berry tells me this story, and I sort of understand all the relationships she had with men who were terrible to her. Yeah, but I, could, I really couldn't give a shit about her personal I life. That's, that's I care about saying. how good an actress she is. Yeah, but, but how did she become that actress? Yeah, but she puts all that aside when she puts when when the when there's a performance on on the screen or stage, and that's what you appreciate. I don't care how yes, she was but, but molested those or. Those could not have come without their background. Yeah, but okay, but I'm 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 giving you background, and you don't want the background. That's all. Look, Elizabeth Shue, her brother was. Uh, they used to go to the swimming pool all the time, right? They swung from the rope. Her brother swung from the rope and landed on didn't land in the water, and he got spiked, and he died. Now, mm. that's a terrible thing to happen, especially if you were there. And okay. so, you know, so how does that affect her? How did that happen? I asked her about that. I talked to her about that. Those are just the things that, are, that give me, hopefully, the reader or the listener a little bit more insight into that person. So when they see something about her, they can go and say, oh, she overcame tragedy. You know, she did. The, it's just that. I know it's it's basically again it's this culture where celebrity is uh, is sort of worshipped and it it's more about the person that in, invariably is not that interesting but people really want to know about them. Well, I I have, I'm very cynical about celebrity. I don't give a shit about celebrity anymore. You've been telling me throughout this whole interview about all these different celebrities that you've yes, had. because those are the people I've interviewed. Those are the people that made me famous in a way. You know, got, one of the things about my book that you know some people say, well, it's all about you know these celebrities. But what about interviewing normal people? My feeling is normal people, so quote in quotes, are just as interesting, and you can apply the same techniques I'm talking about. But it just happened to be my experience was. Interviewing these people. Yeah. I started doing Newsday. I had no choice. They say we want to do interviews with household names. Well, start, uh, and it also I, makes your heart tick a bit faster when you go and see someone who's like Robert De Niro or Al Pacino. I mean, that's and when you when you tell the story, it impresses people. But these individuals probably don't, aren't that as as interesting as say uh, someone who's an accomplished scientist or who doesn't have it much renown, but who's got a really good brain. Nobody, but nobody's going to pay me. Yes, exactly. You're right. You're right. You're living. You gotta. I got to pay ten thousand dollars an interview for Playboy. Wow. Okay. That's that's good. 
We're not supposed to. I didn't think we were supposed to talk about money, Larry. Oh no, you have to talk about money. I think money's a real. <laughs> as a writer, you need to talk about. I always talk about money to my students. I tell them what I made. I tell them exactly. I tell them how much they, I got paid for the use. It's business. sad. It it's sad how much you used to make and how little they make now. Oh, you know, I get I will get calls from people who offer me fifty dollars to do interviews. My it's, I said, nah, it's, you know, I it's just, pathetic, you know, isn't it? It's the mindset. I couldn't even modern maturity when it was modern maturity and not AARP. I wrote for them a few things. Never wrote as good. Why? Because yeah. they never paid me as much. You know what I mean? It was like it was like I realized I was being paid to, to be a better writer. You didn't That's have you didn't have as much. Uh, there was not there wasn't as much skin in the game. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, James Mishner said to me once. He says, you know, he says, Larry, what distinguishes you and I from other people, other writers, is that everybody's a writer. We get paid for it. Yeah. And, and and you never forget that. When I asked Michener to write the introduction to the Capote, now Michener gave away $60 million of uh, his art collection. He gave away, he was a very wealthy man. I paid him. I paid him, I think, $500 or $1,000 or 15 I don't remember what it was, for the introduction. Because that was the only way to honor him. They yeah, respect yeah. him. It's I respect. paid J.P. Donlevy out of my own pocket. I, I got the publish you to pay for the Capote one. But Don Levy, <laughs> I said, I wanted Don Levy to, God, because Don Levy is one of my favorite writers. Just yeah. the idea that he would write an introduction to me, I wanted that to exist. The publisher said, no, they don't have the budget for anything. So I said, Don, I said, Mike, I said, he went by Mike. I said, let me, uh, I'm, I'm going to pay you. I said, you know, would you write something? And he did. Mm -hmm. And I had to edit it because he wrote a very long piece and I, I had to edit Michener too because yeah. it was, they kept going off topic as, as I do. <laughs> <laughs> I figured the reason that you are able to connect with these, with these people is because you know them in, in many cases just as well as they know themselves. Is that true? Yes. Yes. No, I, I think so. At least for that moment, I remind them of things they forgot. But, you know, that's true. I mean, you know, when you start researching somebody, and especially the way I did it, I would go to the Academy Library, I would read every clip that they had of anybody I was talking to. Yeah. Uh, well, especially as you could afford to do that, because you were getting paid really well to do it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Even look, Barbara Streisand, I spent nine months, I didn't get a dime from them. I never got my money up front. I never, you know, I mean, I just uh, did it because... At that point in my career, I just wanted to do a Playboy interview. I wanted to get into Playboy. Did it on spec. And then I got graduated to six or seven. Then it became ten. That was my what I, the most. Entertainment Weekly, when they wanted, when they were starting out, they wanted to get Al Pacino for the cover for for uh, Godfather Three. Everybody wanted it. Yeah. Esquire wanted it. Playboy wanted it. They, the guy who called me up, and he says to me. Uh, and you get us Pacino. I said, well, what are you paying? He says, we'll give you $17,000. See, Pacino, and Pacino knew that the access that you had to him put yes. money in your pocket. Yes. But what the best part was, the, the Entertainment Weekly came back and said, if he'll do the cover, we'll give you 4000 more. Well, the only reason he would do it is for the cover, right? He don't care about the article. So $21,000. That's the most I ever made for uh, an article, you know, for me. Right. What I'm saying is that, you know, it's, what can you do? You, you know, you, you be, once you stop making money, you say, I can support my kids. I can put my kids through college and medical school. I can buy a house by working diligently 
and you know, Rolling Stone paid three dollars a word. I would do a six thousand, no, a three thousand word article for Rolling Stone. I'd get nine thousand dollars. Right. You know, I still had a, I still had to write sixteen or twenty articles a year to make six figures. That's a lot of work. It's a miracle, yeah, that I survived. Yeah. You know, that I yeah. was able to do what I did. The books, they never paid that much. You know, the Houston's. I got paid $215,000 to write that book, but I spent three years writing that book, so yeah. now I'm making 70000 a year, plus I had to travel, I had to go to England, I had to go to Paris. And you had to had pay to for to all that. No, that was part of the two fifty. you know, they paid me one seventy-five, and they gave me an extra 30 for travel. traveling, so okay. it was $215,000 total. Right. But out of that, I had to you know, do what I did, and write a book. <laughs> It's it's not an easy, not an easy, no. Uh, but but it's possible. I don't know if it's possible anymore. No, I, I don't know if you can be an interviewer with what I did anymore. I don't know anybody's paying anything. I anymore. can tell you right now, it's not. You do it out of the love of doing it. Really, yeah. is is a, a but it's just gravy to get paid for it. Absolutely. I mean, what when you do this now, you have a podcast. So the only way you get paid is from the advertising, right? That, that people might advertise on your podcast. Yeah, theoretically, yeah. Do you get publishers to put, put you know, advertise books? No, I don't. I don't want to do any of that. <laughs> I'm living off uh, my investments and my savings, but this is basically the second half of my life. This is what I want to do with it. Yeah, I worry a bit about money, so we're but doing I'm the same thing. No, I'm the same way. I'm the same way. I'm just feeling. I'm writing what I want to write. If somebody wants to publish it, if someone wants, you know, if a screenplay happens, I have had a few. That'll be great. Yeah. I'd love to make some money on it. But uh, yeah. I can survive without it, and I'd rather do what I'm doing. Yeah. That's why I haven't done the podcast, because I've been asked by a few people to do these podcasts. I just say, well, it's going to take, to do what Mark Marin is doing, I could do it, but it would take me probably two or three or four years to get an audience like that, to get the, you know, the advertising to make it worthwhile. Do I have those years of my life left, or do I have one or two more novels I want to write, or a yeah. book of short stories? I yeah. Want to write? I'm, yeah, I'm opting. I'm opting for the selfish way. Good for you. I mean, really, you've only got a certain amount of time left on Earth, and what do you want to leave behind? Exactly. I, you know, I. I mean, I look at the books. I have 28 books out there that you can actually hold, and I said, "That's that's nice. That's, I'm going to make grandchildren." But you know, I'm also worried about some of the things I've written. I have a granddaughter. A lot of the stuff I wrote is very sexist. But why? Because I wasn't a member of the Me Too generation. I was a member of the 1960s and 50s growing up and, you know, trying to trap a girl when I was 15 years old. All you do is think about getting laid. That, and, that's and, that's and, the honest truth. Yeah. I was very honest about it. But there's a couple of scenes in the memoir that I thought, uh, me, my little granddaughter, who's five years old right now, I thought 15, 20 years from now, when I'm gone, she's going to read about her grandpa. How is she going to think of me? I changed that, that, that some of those sections. I went back and I said, I want to rewrite it in a certain way. And I did. I feel bad that I did. But on the other hand, I also feel uh, sensitive to the, the movements that are going on today, even though I you know, uh, was never a part of those movements until, uh, until now. I was wondering and thinking about whether or not I would bring this up, but I think you might advise that I do. So on page 359 of uh, The Art of the Interview, you say, but, and I think this is when you're questioning yourself. You've got an interview in there where you, you are the both the interviewer and the interviewee, and you say, 
but I've been known to bring up sexual dalliance. This is about lying. But I've been known to bring up sexual dalliances in my past that I might make sound as if they happened just the other day. In other words, you've had sexual dalliances in your marriage. That, that's putting it out there. Yeah, even though I haven't. <laughs> I mean, the fact is that... Okay, wait a minute here. Let me just focus on that again. What you're saying is there that, is that you have had them, but you bring them up to date. You bring them up as if you've just had them as opposed to them being in the distant past. No, well, what I'm saying is that in the very distant past, in other words, the sexual dalliances that, I, you know, I'm married, I've been married since 1978, let's say. So I may be talking about something that, you know, yeah, oh yeah, I did this too, you know. But the fact is I may have done that in 1972, you know, before I was married. Or anything. Doesn't read that, doesn't read that way, Larry. Yeah, well, that's the way I was really meaning it, in a way that I, no, I've been, thankfully I've been faithful to my wife and not, but whatever, but, you know, uh, She's what Japanese. I'm saying eh? is, is that if I'm interviewing somebody who's telling me about not they're not being faithful to their wives, I might say I haven't been faithful to mine to get you to talk about the fact that you haven't been faithful to yours. Because in the end, I'm only using what you have to say, not what I have to say. You know, I'm, I'm editing, so that's where that I, I would go with that. Sometimes, so you're I, lying. You're lying to them. I might lie to them. I might uh, stretch the truth. Not necessarily. I mean, I wouldn't I remember, do that. Well, raw. Robert Shear, you know who he is? Bob Shear? Yes, yeah. Well, he was once quoted on the cover of Writer's Digest saying, I would sleep with my grandmother, I would lie, I would do this, I would do, I'd do anything possible yeah. to get the quote. Right. He got the famous quote from Jimmy Carter about uh, Lust in My Heart. Yeah, um, Playboy. That actually, they came out as they were walking out of the door. <laughs> so it, was, it was not even part of the interview, but the the tape was still on. Right. Just guys talking. When he said that, I would lie, cheat, cheat. I don't do it either. I mean, I may, I'm saying it now uh, to you that uh, I may have lied. Yes, maybe. But I would say, if you ask me a percentage of the times I have not told the truth, I'd say it's 1%, 2%. If I fabricate something it's or, or elaborate something, I've had some pretty amazing stories in my life. Uh, you know, I mean, that's what that memoir is all about. For sure you have. That's what's making this. This what's making this this interview uh, interesting. No, I've lost you. I've got another question for you. Okay. You much prefer, as I do, to interview people alone, just you and them, and quiet. Right. Yeah, it's it's a much much better vibe. I think you can connect much better. It, it also brings up the question of uh, publicists, and you deal a bit with publicists. And what a pain in the ass so, they can be. Yeah. I have a real love-hate with publicists. For the yeah. Most part, I hate, but but yeah. there's nothing you can do about it. You know, when I did Gyllenhaal, Jake Gyllenhaal, I get there and there's a New York Times reporter before me. There's another reporter. Yeah. It's yeah. like boom, boom, boom. Yeah, it's like they don't... They, yeah, there's no respect and they don't really give right. a shit about... Like, okay, you've got 20 minutes or you've got a half an hour. It's like, personally, if that's what uh, the author's publicist says to me, I say, I'm not interested. I don't want to do that. I want at least an hour. Right. No, I agree with you. And I, I mean... Right now, writers have to be thankful anybody wants to talk to them. You know what I mean? So I can't imagine too many writers saying no. I mean, John Updike turned me down and um, Tom Wolfe. I had to go for those two and I really wanted them. I couldn't get them. 
It's too bad about Wolf. Well, yeah, Updike had a stutter. So I just think that what happened with Updike was he didn't want that on tape. He didn't want to get, and I understood that. But also, I I met him because we corresponded three or four times, and he kept saying no to me. So finally, (laughs) when I, I, he was at the library doing a reading or something in downtown LA. So I went and I waited online to get him to sign a book, whatever. And I said, I said, Mr. Updike, I said, you and I have been writing to each other. I said, you know, I've been trying to get you to do my, this interview and you won't do it. And he looked at me, he says, yeah. I, says, I said, you know, I did so bellow. And he said to me, yes, I know, I read it. <laughs> That's all. He read it and he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to go. Yeah. He knew what was in there. So I respected that. Yeah. Lawrence Olivier kept turning me down also. I have four letters that are framed from Lawrence Olivier. All of them saying, not now, not now, not now, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so I never did it with him, you know? Yeah. And Delilo, you couldn't get to Delilo, Cormac McCarthy. There are certain writers who just don't want to talk. Uh, yeah. He would be the, the catch of the century if you couldn't get to Salinger. But, um, you know, not going to get him. I have what I call <laughs> the bibliophile reference library. So what I've done is I've collected, I've got about four or five hundred publishers' histories, and I also uh, collect all sorts of memoirs from authors, editors, book designers, printers, uh, collectors, booksellers, you name it, so that I can reference these books when I interview all these different types of people. And you, you have something similar going, or had. You mean all the things I have in my archives? Uh, no, I mean, uh, I mean that you had quite a library that you were uh, able to call upon. Yeah, in my office right here, I have 10 or 12... 15 shelves, just look, looking at them, in these bookcases that are floor to ceiling. And in every one of the, those shelves are books that are stacked this way and then piled up this way. And they all have to do with the work I would do. So they're mostly entertainment books or they're books about you know celebrities or writers or authors, whatever it is, uh, people's biographies. So that's all right in my hands. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I would prefer that than going online I, or looking and, you know, whatever. That's the way I am. Downstairs in my house, I just recently have been cataloging all the signed first editions I have. I have some amazing books signed by Truman Capote and Norman Mailer. Yeah. I have 135 books by Joyce Carol Oates. Every one of them is signed to me. Every one, yeah. including all our poetry. Same thing with, with uh, J.P. Donlevy. You know, or, or you know, some of the writers I have, Michener, I have every one of his books. I have 80 or 90 books, all signed, and with his stamp on it. So they're valuable to me anyway, and I know, you know, but I have Joseph Heller, I uh, Catch-22. So I realize now, or my wife realizes that uh, she's ready to leave me during the pandemic if I don't get rid of all the shit in the house. You know, what are we going to do? Leave this to the kids, you know? They don't want it. I can relate, so I yeah. I think, I I think every bibliophile can relate. Right. So I've been cataloging all the signed books that are inscribed and stuff, and I thought I had about 300. Turns out I have 965 okay. first editions in really prim condition, you know, signed late. I have another 2,000. So what are you going to do with them? First. Well, um, I just contacted somebody who's someone I knew from, who, from UCLA Special Edition. Uh, 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 collections. Collections Library. 
she's no longer there, but she knew somebody, a guy who uh, deals with this kind of stuff. And maybe the library, the books won't go to the Library of Congress. I have, but my tapes, I have yeah. thousands and thousands of tapes. I have 52 hours with Barbara Streisand, 100 hours with John Huston. I have mm-hmm. Michener, 100 hours. What do you do with all these tapes you have? I sold one tape on uh, Bonhams. They did a, an auction. Yeah. And I had, they wanted my book, Surely You're Choking, You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, Richard Feynman, who won the Nobel Prize in quantum physics. Huge following. One of the great geniuses. Uh, you know, him and Stephen Hawking's would have been, I guess, the two greatest geniuses of our time. And, uh, and Feynman has died. So Feynman, the woman wanted to put up a, the book at auction. I said, well, it's not even a first edition, but he had signed it. He never signs books. I had dinner with him once. But at that dinner, he told me a story. He told me an amazing story about how he he bumped his head going to get a computer and that uh, his brain was leaking. Uh, The pressure on his brain was causing him to be a very bad teacher rather than a good teacher and causing him to forget where he was and whatever. And finally, he went to the doctor. They drilled two holes in his brain, and his brain was back to normal again. So it was a great story. Yeah. Ended up writing it for the L.A. Times magazine. It was a cover story. And it was also the time that he was on the shuttle. When the shuttle exploded, and he was on the committee to figure out how the shuttle exploded. And he was the only one who figured it out. The mm, O-ring. Yeah. That, was, uh, that was fine. But at the time I was seeing him, he hadn't figured it out yet. He was on the committee, but he couldn't talk about it, right? And then as soon as I finished the article, about a week later, he comes out with that. So I had to, then I had to go back into the article and all. But anyway, I had this tape with him. So I said, how about, you know, when we auction it, we'll throw in the tape. And we did. And it sold for seven times more than the price that they thought they were going to get for it. They, it sold into, you know, the... Mid five yep. figures. Very Mid five figures. It was pretty. It was pretty amazing to me. So I realized that from that, I got Sol Bellow. I got Malin. Yeah. I got Capote on tape. I mean, but yeah. these not just t- regular conversations. These are the most in depth things they've ever done. Yeah. And yeah. I have all that stuff. So it's got to be valuable. That's gold. Yeah. So I, I think what I have to do is have someone like this guy take it to the Library of Congress, take it to the University of Texas. I've got just the man for you. I won't say his name uh, on this interview, but I'll give it to you afterwards. Good. Uh, I just want to (laughs) quickly hit a few extra highlights about interviewing that you've put in the book, because there's so much that you've put in. Uh, Be a chameleon, be a good listener, don't be afraid to speak up, ask very direct questions uh, without alienating (laughs) your guest, of course. Seduce, perform, flirt, be confident, tease, coax, goad. It's all good stuff. (laughs) And here's here's the best one. It's important to establish early on that you're not a schmuck. Joel Siegel, by any chance, was that me? That's you. Okay. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's you. It, it might be it someone might else, be. but I think it's it might you. Be, I mean, I know Joel Siegel was a friend of mine, too, and he was great on TV. He passed away. I'm just wondering, you know, that sounded like something he would have said, too. But, uh, yes, it's, you know, this is the whole thing, you know. It's like when you come in, that's why I always feel the most important part of an interview is the first minute you walk in the door. The first yeah. moment you make yeah. eye contact. Yeah. When I saw Warren Beatty, 
I was dressed in a, an African fugu. I, I lived in Africa for three years in the Peace Corps in Ghana. So I had a lot of that clothing and I felt comfortable in that clothing. It wasn't like a, an act. I liked wearing those stuff. Yeah. But, I, but I knew if I, would, if I wear it to an interview, I'm going to be looked at differently. <laughs> yeah. And I just said certain people I would figure out that way. Sometimes I saw Louis, Louis Lasser was jailed for marijuana. She was Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, very big television show at the time. So when she got out of jail, I was going to be to interview her. So I go to her, to, to, and I'm just just very casually. But she says, she, the guy before me was coming out, he was wearing a suit and a tie. He was from the Wall Street Journal. And I could see that she was very uptight type of interview. When I came in, she was much, she saw me and she got more relaxed in a certain way. And she said to me, do you have a joint? Okay. And I looked at her, I said, well, I said, I, I always would carry one just in case anybody asked, but I said, well, but I don't know, you know, how good it is. She says, is it any good? And I said, oh, I don't know your capacity. She says, well, then we better use mine. She says, but I'm on parole, she says, and if you, if you write about this, I will kill you. She told me, so I said, okay, so we smoked a little bit and we walked on the beach. Now, that to me was like amazing that she believed that I wouldn't write about it, that I, that she could trust me to even bring it up, you know. You just don't know. So I always feel I want to make people very comfortable, and I will go anywhere. We touched on the fact that it's about rapport, and you and you sure got a nice rapport with her early on. Yeah, and that was the idea. Well, the thing is, but, but with Elliot, too. Yeah, so he gave me, he said he wanted to try Coke. I had never done it, but I figured, oh, I'll do it once. What the heck? So I said, okay. Well, I don't know what it was laced with. I don't know what it was. I've never done it again. But what happened is that my teeth clenched. We went up to his bedroom to talk because there were people around. Yeah. We're in his bedroom and I'm like this. And I'm, I'm, I cannot get my words out. And I'm, I actually went in the bathroom to pry my teeth open. <laughs> Elliot was very cool about it. He didn't, he didn't. He just gave me a charm. And he says, he suck on this. Like, you know, so I get it wrong. Huh? But, I mean, it was like, God, you know, the things one will do. <laughs> I, I was willing to jump out of an airplane for an interview. I would yeah. not do that for anything else. But, I mean, not for an interview, for an article. But that's what writing to me has always been. It's a, it, it'll, I've, I've never done acid. I don't know about you, but I've never done no, it. No, I don't want to oh. screw up my brain. Well, that's what Linus Pauling said to me. Yeah. When I asked him about, you know, I said, you know, a lot of scientists might be curious. I mean, you look at uh, uh, Sam, you know, Coleridge and Rhyme of the Ancient yeah, Mariner. Yeah. A lot of these people took drugs. A lot of them went, you know, Ken Kesey, they went places to see how far they could go. Yeah. And and Pauling said, you know, I've been given a gift. My brain is my gift, he says, and I don't know what it would do to me. Maybe mm. it would make me think better, but maybe it wouldn't, and I don't want to take the chance. Now, I don't have his brain, but I still don't want to do acid. <laughs> I'm still afraid of that one. Yeah, me too. We're just about to wind wind uh, off here. I, I want to just, first of all, comment that you don't talk much about what the author wants, which in large part is to get readers to buy their books. You cover beautifully what the interviewer should be doing, but you also need to keep in, in mind that you do. I don't. I mean, have I been selling my books to you? I got 28 books. Have I mentioned the names of my novels? Or I, I held up one or two books, but yeah, I no. don't do that. I I would like you to ask me about my books and I'll talk about them. But I don't, I ha that's my problem is I don't sell myself. In but I'm talking about the book, at The Art of the Interview, 
you focus oh. obviously on the interviewer as opposed to yeah. wh why the interviewee is talking to you in the first place. Of course, they want to get publicity and exposure, uh, but they also want to, in the, in the case of authors, they want to sell books. Yes, well, um, to tell you the truth, I never think about what they want. I know what they want. I mean, yeah. yes, obviously, they yeah. want to talk about it, but but I don't think that, for me to write about that, what, I don't know, what, what you just said it all right there. The authors want to sell their work, so yeah. that's why they're doing it. Yeah. But that's not why they did it for the Playboy interview. The Playboy interview was a different animal. So they were, it's, it wasn't there to promote necessarily. It didn't come out necessarily when someone had a movie coming out. Sometimes it, you know, it did. Uh, that's how De Niro was pressured into it because they, the movie he was making. They, the, the company pressured him into doing the interview. But for the most part, um, the interviews I did weren't necessarily tied to a movie. No. Uh, you know, I mean, I did Patty Hearst, and she had a book. I guess it was coming out or it came out. I don't remember. But you know, it was like. The idea was to get to Patty Hearst. No one got to her. She, you know, she's getting out of jail. It's an amazing interview to, to have, and but there's so much to talk about. You know, yeah. the whole history of that uh, thing. The interviews I did, I always looked at as history. Yeah. And, and, I mean, that's what Ariana did. Interviews with history. I always thought of it as like the cultural history of the United States, basically some foreigners from the 70s until today. You know, if you look at Endangered Species, for instance, you mentioned that the book. I'm very proud of that book. You can't even get it anymore. You probably get it for a dollar if you can find it online, but because it's not been reprinted. Uh, but it's a, it's a lasting book because it's about these people's lives and they talk about them, you know, themselves. And it's Neil Simon and Andrew Creeley as well as Saul Bellow and Norman Mailer. And, uh, you know, so it's it's an interesting uh, collection of, of of writers. Writers with are my heroes. You know, they're the ones that I. You know, when you talk about getting excited about seeing somebody. Yeah. Marlon Brando made me, you know, in a lot of ways. Barbara Streisand and Bar th those two interviews made my reputation. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. But the ones I'm, you know, you asked me if I would go back to see anybody. I'd like to see Capote again. I'd like to go back to see Mailer. I love being around him. Um, you know, they were smart people. And when you read, when you saw it, even on TV, the interview I did with Mailer on, on TV, when I had the transcript done, it was in perfect sentences. There weren't stutters. There weren't uh, re repetitions. It was amazing to see how he his mind worked beautifully uh, uh, transcribed. I didn't have to futz around with too much. I just took the areas I liked. But I, you know, it was it was all there. Whereas when you talk to Al Pacino or Robert De Niro, or whatever, it's like oh, he talked. He he said one sentence about his mother on page twenty two, and five days later on page sixty, another yeah. sentence, and then another sentence. And I would take those three and I put them together. They make him look articulate. That's what De Niro said to me: "Is you made me smarter than I thought I was." Yeah, I mean, I mean, interviewing authors, authors, and you do reference this in the book. Authors have stories to tell, and they know how to tell them. And they're typically Absolutely. they're typically interesting people, and, and that's why I, I I'm doing what I'm doing. I I want to connect with really smart, interesting people. So, uh, but enough about me. Let's let's end here with uh, Aristotle again, who says, as I promised, to know yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. And I know you've got a book that basically outlines all the lessons that you've learned as a result of all these fascinating connections that you've. So there, here's an here's a chance to plug that book. 
Well, you know, Polonius did say in, in, in Hamlet, you know, to thine own self be true, right? Yeah. Basically, that's it. The bottom line for all of this is know yourself, be true to yourself, try, and, and especially as an interviewer, be who you are. You can't fake it. I knew when I saw Marlon Brando, when I was going there, I said, he's got the best shit detector of all. He's the best actor of all, so he would have that. So if I started to, you know, tell him a story that, uh, that it that I, I'm making up or something, he'll catch me. So I got to be, you know, I got to be as honest as I can. I got to be who I am. But you need and to plug, you need to plug the book, Larry, right now. Yeah, well, well, you're talking to me. It's, it's a book that, that basically says that, you know, that I've interviewed all these artists, athletes, celebrities over five decades. The memoir I wrote uh, called You Show Me Yours described how I was the Mozart of interviewers, basically, uh, by Joyce Carroll. You talking to me details what I've learned from talking to some of the most fascinating people of our time. So it includes Cameron Diaz and James Spader, J.P. Donlevy and George E. Scott, Patty Harris and Mel Gibson, Nicole Kidman, James Carey, Miles Davis, Meryl Streep, Jeff Bridges, Naylor, Leonard, Oates, uh, Paul McCarthy, Hugh Hefner, Elliot Gould, Charlie Sheen, Jesse Ventura, Barbara Streisand, you know, 120 different people. You are one fascinating person, and so thank you very much for a, well, a very you. entertaining, at least for me, uh, interview. It's been a great pleasure. Uh, Larry, you have a website, so we'll just plug that. It's, uh, is it lawrencegrobel.com? Yes, L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E. G-R-O-B-E-L.com. It's got all the books I have listed on the front page, but also I've blogged a lot of stuff. I have photographs of me with all these celebrities on a gallery, and then there's another section that has all the books I've published, almost all anyway. I haven't updated some of it, but uh, all the foreign editions. So you see the Pacino oh, yeah. books are published in 14 countries. Great. And the, you, know, so you have to see the different covers people come up with. Yeah. You know? Uh, the Capote one is really fascinating. The German one shows Capote on the cover dancing with Marilyn Monroe. I've got to read the Capote yeah. conversations with Capote. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that may that, that book will last as long as anything I've ever done. I don't know why, but it's just like people yeah. love that book. You yeah. Know? But, Very uh, good. Well, thank you so much again. Thank you, Nigel.